0: My name is Tim Peterson. I'm the Senior Media Editor at Digiday.
1: And I'm Kaylee Barber, Media Editor at Digiday.
0: Kaylee, so we are doing our semi-regular check-in on just like what's going on in the media and advertising industry. And we figured it's a good time for it. You know, summer's closing up, about to head into the fall and Q4. Um, It's kind of wild to me that summer's just about over. Like, it feels like summer blew by more so than any other year I can really remember.
1: Yeah, and I feel like there's been a lot going on, too. A lot of changes, uh, a lot of big concerns cropping up that's been keeping the conversation lively and uh, very dramatic over in the ad tech and uh, media world. So it's definitely been an exhausting summer. Reporting has not slowed, that's for sure. So definitely lots to cover in this recap.
0: Yeah, I was trying to like refresh myself on what all has gone on over the past few months. And I was just like, Jesus, it's been like the summer of acronyms. Like, there's (laughs) obviously all the AI stuff. There's the WGA and SAG strikes. There's MFAs, which is something you've been covering a lot of over the summer. And then ARPU, which um, you pointed out in your media briefing was like the big metric a lot of publishers were focusing on. And then on the streaming side of things with all these price hikes going on, that's similarly an effort by these uh, streaming companies to increase the revenue they're making per user. So just, I don't know, like alphabet soup summer.
1: That is a very good descriptor for it. Yeah, I mean, where where to start out of all of those acronyms? I think the MFA conversation maybe is one that um, I'll I'll kick off with only because it's been very top of mind in my reporting the past few weeks. Um, along with Seb and Ronan on our team, we've been very in the weeds trying to understand all of the concerns of MFAs, all of the. Uh, maybe not pros, but the reasons why MFAs exist in the first place. And it's definitely causing a lot of uh, chatter amongst our readers on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, made for advertising sites for those who are unfamiliar with the acronym MFA. They kind of cropped up at the beginning of the summer. I think at Can is when um, the ANA released a report and discussed um, the role of made for advertising sites in the programmatic space, um, basically saying that these sites offer pretty much like vanity metrics in terms of like what they deliver on for advertisers, like high viewability, but very, Low, like actual conversions or um, you know, impactful metrics that you know, indicate a campaign has done well. But for some marketers, like those viewability metrics are what they're most concerned about when it comes to their campaigns. So there's been this kind of process of not just like identifying made for advertising sites in the programmatic space, but also like trying to define them in the first place because there is no set definition. And, a lot of people feel like they know what they are. They know it when they see it kind of thing. They think like clickbait sites are, um, you know, the same as made for advertising, but really like it's just about the ad experience. So if you have like a ton of like ad spots on a page or like, you know, ad refresh is too quick or, um, you know, the there's a lot of video players on a site and like you know, a publisher decides to do that for one site and maybe not their others, like that's still considered made for advertising. Um, So there's this ongoing debate. It's been very extensive um, and it it seems like made for advertising is definitively bad, right? Like that is just like, there's too many negatives to prove out the positives, but um, there's still a large group of marketers and maybe even publishers who depend on the traffic that comes from um, or that goes to made for advertising sites and then possibly even like, you know, to other places. So yeah, it's been a very um, exciting summer when you're talking about MFAs with ad tech and buyers and marketers and publishers and Definitely top of mind.
0: Yeah, and so why is that something that's bubbled up all of a sudden? Because it feels like a lot of those sites, there, the issues with them are issues that have been you know brought up and kind of tackled in the past, like running too many ads on a site or um, sites maybe delivering on viewability but not on conversions. Like you know, the too many ads on a site. There have been. You know, Google for you know one has cracked down on that in terms of you know search rankings, and I feel like there have been companies um, that take it into account when it comes to um, running ads on site or how sites get scored when it comes to ad performance. But then there's also like um, the performance marketing. It's saying it's a trend isn't right because I think it's more than a trend. But you know, so many advertisers talking about measuring based on actual business results and, you know, the focus on attribution. It feels like a lot of that work would have weeded these out. So what's different about what's going on now?
1: Yeah. So I think it's partially a scale problem, like with the inclusion or with the development of AI um, and how that's used in like a content production standpoint. There are so many more sites being created that are considered MFAs, then I forget what the stat is from like NewsGuard, um, but it was something like every hour there's like a new site created, or maybe it's even more of that. I should probably look this up and and have a a proper stat for you. But the scale of MFA sites is growing at a much faster rate. And I think that has been um, occurring more so this summer than in the past. But you're right, there is a lot of effort to purify the programmatic bid stream, and um, I think also I don't technically think this was in the summer, but earlier this year I was covering a lot of like sustainability-focused, um, like um, how agencies and marketers and you know uh, publishers even were practicing sustainability in their programmatic business, and you know they've realized that. Uh, their scope three metrics, which includes digital advertising, is a very large portion of their carbon footprint, like upwards of like ninety percent in some cases. Um, and so that focus on like supply path optimization and making sure the there isn't a ton of like computational power going into selling an ad or buying an ad, like that focus has also I think shed a light on these made for advertising sites which operate. Like auctions at a like magnitudes of degrees higher than a premium publisher like Condé Nast or like Hearst. So there's I think a few different things being looked at very closely in the programmatic space, and they've kind of all bubbled up into a way where like, all right, if we attack MFAs or at least focus on that problem a little bit closely, then we can solve some of these other problems like. Maybe improving CPMS, reducing carbon emissions, um, you know, not having our ads show up on really, you know, less than ideal websites. Like all of these kind of issues that have been talked about in varying capacities over the past x amount of years. Like I think they're all kind of congealing and maybe being able to be focused on in a more centralized way, if that makes sense. At least that's kind of what I'm sensing based on. All this reporting kind of happening at the same time this summer.
0: The AI part of that is really interesting to me because it feels like that's been something of a I don't know that it's a flip that's switched this summer, because I think there have been a lot of concerns about generative AI and the downsides and the threat of generative AI, but it feels like the tenor has really changed towards more of a focus on the downsides when it comes to generative AI. Like Generative AI technologies being used to create websites made for advertising websites. And then obviously, you know, in the entertainment side of things, it's a big concern among the writers as well as the actors who are on strike. And it's become a big um, focal point. Like I remember when we had Paul Einstein from uh, Project X Entertainment on the podcast in, I believe it was May, I think it was right after the writers went on strike. We talked a bit about how AI figures into the strikes and the negotiations, but I think, at least for my part, I underestimated how much of a factor AI was going to play into it. And it makes perfect sense because it's like a really big threat. But you know, are you getting a similar feel that like AI is getting more of a second scrutiny look?
1: I do, and I don't, because It's interesting, like, let's, you know, talking to that, you know, strike slash, like, union lens for a second. Like, a lot of uh, publisher unions have been concerned about the role of AI and setting standards for the use of AI in a newsroom. And Sarah Guaglioli has done a great job on our team covering this. But there's, it, from the, from the, reporter standpoint, the people who create the content, I think there is scrutiny and there is concern that it's going to either impact their jobs, it's going to, um, you know, cause issues and like credibility and and things of that nature. But then, you know, you listen to publisher earning reports, you speak to CROs or maybe not CROs, but like CEOs and like C-suite level publishers. And there is still a lot of excitement and encouragement around how AI can streamline like back-end things, like, uh, you know, the sales process. Like, I think there's been this focus of reducing, like, the legwork for maybe, like, campaign pitches or, like, working with advertisers and, like, using AI to solve some of those, like, sales cycle issues that, you know, we've reported on over the past year or so. Like, there's a lot of optimism still. And then like you look in the newsroom too, and there's this idea that AI could be used to help reporters get like the background legwork done to help like add more context to their story versus them having to do all of that themselves. And so I think there's like this idea that like if used responsibly, AI could be very like beneficial to how publishers operate in a business standpoint. But relying on those ideal situations is not necessarily like a great thing to do either because at least in my opinion there's the opportunity for like a lot of like errors to come into play or uh you know it's getting scrutiny but I also think there's a lot of like opportunity being looked at from leadership to keep AI having a role in in media business
0: yeah so maybe like a better way to say it is it feels like there's a lot more work or activity around putting guardrails in place, but like Sarah Fisher in her newsletter for Axios, I think you know, wrote about uh, how different news publishers are coming together to create standards or guidelines around how AI is implemented. And you know, one thing like I think Wired is one of them, one of the publishers named in there, and you know, they talk about how they're not going to be using generative AI for imagery on you know their site um, and then i think it was i think it was in june and i think it was the ana like put out an announcement saying that agencies should need to communicate when they're using generative ai to create campaigns for brands and so it feels like a lot of it is at least um, around transparency with the use of ai cuz that's even kind of one of the factors in the hollywood strikes is just, well, I guess it's not so much transparency around the use of AI, but compliance with the use of AI and just consent of if, you know, a- an actor um, is allowing, you know, their image to be used, you know, by AI for future projects and then the compensation to go along with that.
1: Yeah, I think guardrails is definitely, like, the major focus, but, like, even creating guardrails and then taking a step further and like creating regulations. Like I think that's a topic that you had discussed on the podcast earlier um, this summer as well, but it seems like it's like, it's a rapidly changing technology. It's a rapidly developing technology, I should say. And I feel like the rate in which regulations and then accepted guardrails because of that I feel like could maybe not keep pace with one another I don't know my
0: <laughs> I mean I'm very skeptical of regulation like regulation coming to pass for generative AI or at least right. meaningful regulation just because I mean it's going to be an election year next year and a presidential election year no less like I don't see much getting done um, in that respect um, and then also like Uh, I think a good marker in some respect could be what the WGA and SAG-AFTRA agree to with the studios around the use of AI. Because I think this is the first, if if not the first, I think the biggest so far um, real kind of conflict over the use of AI. And so I think in that respect, it serves as, Something of a test balloon for how that's going to go moving forward. Like as you mentioned, newsrooms and especially newsroom unions have taken up AI as you know something that they're negotiating about. Like Sarah you know, wrote about that um, and how that's figuring into some of these bargaining agreements or renewals of um, agreements. But I think WJ and sag after especially because there's so much money at stake on both sides, that um, that's going to be a really interesting. Test case.
1: Yeah. I mean, mentioning the election year, I feel like the misinformation like fight is going to be so much more intense because of this. So, if you know, publishers like Wired and and others agreed to say, like, you know, we're not going to use like AI generated art in our like editorial at all, I think like even a step like that and being very, very transparent with audiences that you know that technology is not used within the newsroom in any capacity i think will be really important to just even like handling this whole election cycle from a media standpoint
0: but then there's the x of it all
1: (laughs) and there's the x of it all which is like
0: another like of the big things that popped up the summer, but especially looking ahead to next year with the election, she's like, yeah, what's X's role going to be when it comes to misinformation? And, you know, it as much as X tries to make it out like, oh, we're the platform for free speech and all of that, they're regulating news publishers pretty heavily in terms of how their content could, like there was even something I saw in the past day or so about, I don't remember exactly, but it was um, like that they were going to remove headlines um, when article links are shared on X and that it would just be like the URL, which would give you kind of no information um, or context. And there was the, what was it, like a week or two ago, the throttling of, you know, links to some places, including I think the New York Times was one of them.
1: Yeah. I think it was framed as like, or at least reporting around it was framed as like sites Elon doesn't like or like direct competitors. But yeah, I, you know, in, again, the reporting we've been doing around what's happening on X, like publishers are still obviously showing up there. There's still a very large audience. And I know they have some features, like I've noticed at least on my own timeline, like users can add contacts to a photo if it's going viral or like if it's uh Showing up on timelines, but it's not like not accurate. Like I think the uh, hurricane or tropical storm that hit California. Like I saw um, a video from a Universal Studios ride, which like showed a flood scene. And they were like, "Oh my gosh, the tropical storm hitting California right now!" And then it was like users add context, like this is a ride at Universal Studios, right, like a
0: tram ride.
1: Yeah, so there's like some tools that are being offered, but even then, it's like user context. It's not like you know verified context. It's not like um, you know fact checkers. It's users. So it's really gonna. I think it's gonna be a. I don't know. Twitter's gonna be a scary. X is gonna be a scary place.
0: Yeah, and especially since you know Meta rolls out Threads, another big story of the summer, but. Threads I think uh, usage has dropped by 80% since it's you know launched so and then also you know because Threads is part of Instagram technically and Instagram had Adam Mosseri has you know said eh, not really interested in news or politics content so Threads doesn't seem like it's going to be the platform that could make X kind of Skew more towards, you know, neutral territory or responsible territory, at least.
1: Not yet, at least. Yeah. I mean, I talked to some news publishers at the beginning of the summer about or around the launch of threads about how they're going to be viewing the platform for political content. And a lot of them did say that they're going to be taking at least a similar approach to how they approach Instagram. So like if their Instagram audiences are you know interested in political content or news content, they'll Kind of take a similar approach on threads, but even then, it's all experimentation. So, like, if it's not getting traction, I have to imagine they're not going to waste their time posting that content there. So, yeah, I mean, there hasn't really been a Twitter competitor that's done a stellar job at actually like winning over the audience there. So, yeah, I mean, time will tell, I guess. But at least from my perspective, I haven't used threads and. Six weeks, or I don't know when it launched, but it's been a while.
0: Yeah, since launch day for me. So yeah, which and then there's also just kind of the question of news on platforms in general. Like uh, I don't remember if it was Adweek um, or Insider maybe who reported you know recently on how uh, traffic to news publishers through Facebook has dropped like really significantly this year. Um, which I think will surprise just about no one who's been paying attention to Facebook and news publishers. But you have that. You have what's going been going on with X, like we've been saying, Threads not really you know being welcoming to news publishers so much. And then in Canada, you know Canada. Passed the law as Australia did to require, you know, Facebook and you know, Meta and Google to compensate publishers for distributing their news content. And Facebook said, "All right, never mind. Then we just won't carry any news content on our sites." And then you have, you know, this week Justin Trudeau saying that, you know, calling out Meta for not carrying news coverage, um, given like how important it can be as a source for that information. And so then there's the potential for TikTok ban, which just got super quiet over the summer. Like, you know, it's banned in Montana. Um, TikTok's filed suit to appeal that, but there hasn't really been any movement to my mind on the TikTok ban front, either direction.
1: No, yeah, I haven't heard anything in the past several months about that. Um, I have heard of... Publishers continuing partnerships with the platform. Like I think Condé Nast is just kicking off um, a deal with the with TikTok. That I think it started this summer, but it's really going to be like a focus for a second half. Um, and they're trying to push e-commerce now. Like their platform um, is meant to what was it com- compete with like Shein and, and Timu or whatever those like very very fast fashion fast retail retailers are in China. Like that was at least the framing I saw when they first announced it. So there a TikTok is TikTok
0: shop or what was that for?
1: Yeah, for TikTok shop. That's how it oh. was like billed, I guess, as like a competitor with with those guys. Um, that was a few weeks ago. So perhaps they've changed their strategy, but they're trying to roll out a uh, shopping platform for U.S. audiences. So definitely still ambitious in the U.S.,
0: I mean speaking of you know marketplaces um the advertising marketplace as well as the media M&A marketplaces like so the upfront you know the TV advertising upfront or TV and streaming advertising upfront that goes on you know over the summer and it happened this summer but at a slower pace and kind of a quieter pace than in the past like the past few years you've had Companies like Disney and NBCU like rapidly closed deals. That, you know, announced that they had wrapped up their upfront before Fourth of July and been very vocal about the gains. Everyone was super muted this year, in part because a lot of companies were down or like Disney was flat um, in terms of the amount of ad dollars you know committed compared to last year. Because there's still all the economic concerns and you know, not only the economic concerns, but then you have these Hollywood strikes like we've been talking about that have just really, really called into question, what shows are the networks and the streamers going to actually have? And how does that affect like advertisers' willingness to commit to anything other than live sports, really? Um, and then you've been covering the ad market. How's the ad market been doing?
1: Yeah, so I've been talking to several publisher CROs and like revenue kind of leads the past few days just to do a pulse check heading into the fall. Um, And from what I'm hearing, Q3 and Q4 are looking like they're going to be up from last year, which isn't necessarily too hard to do considering how bad the end of last year ended up being for a lot of publishers. But um, what I have heard is that the categories that are spending more is like Luxury, beauty, um, CPG retailer, travel is a really big category still. Like in auto, auto is like one that was called out by name um, by a conversation with Conde Nast earlier today, actually, that really focused on. They're just seeing a lot of promise there. The categories that aren't doing as well, those are like tech and finance, which I don't think is surprising considering like what's been going on, um, but. Even in those categories, there's, I think, the hope and expectation that, especially when you look at, like, consumer tech products, that spending will come back in Q4 timeframe. So all this to say, from what I'm hearing, RFP volume is up, uh, ad dollars are up, and, like, channels like events are doing pretty well. Um, I think, you know, once we get into Q4, that's always a pretty Hefty quarter for publishers. So I would expect to see even like commerce starting to come back too. Um, whether that's tied to advertising or like completely separate depends on the publisher. But I do think that from what I'm hearing so far, the ad market is looking promising. That said, subject to change, right? Like you never, you never know what's going to happen. There's um, knock on wood that it'll stay strong, but the economy, you know is fickle.
0: Right. Yeah. And then it'll be interesting to see what kind of knock on effect that could have on like the MA market, for example. Cause I think it was Lucas Shaw at Bloomberg who in his newsletter this week, you know, he wrote about how the MA market has been <laughs> awful or the time right now is awful for media companies to do any kind of merger or acquisition. Um And that one of the factors he cited is the state of the ad market. And I think there's probably, there seems to be a number of examples um, showing how weak the M&A market is. Like, you know, there's the vice effectively fire sale post bankruptcy, um, Penn selling Barstool back to Dave Portnoy for a dollar and 50% of like future um, sale value. So there is that, but, um, and then, you know, Disney CEO Bob Iger saying, yeah, maybe we sell off our TV networks or, you know, maybe we bring another investor on for Vice. And then you have Paramount who's been trying to reportedly trying to sell BET, um, but just has not been willing to agree with Tyler Perry's, I think, the front runner to buy BET. But they're not coming to you know agreement on what the price should be, and so Paramount last week said, "All right, never mind. We're going to keep BET for now, um, but maybe if you know, as you're indicating, if the ad market changes and gets a bit more positive, maybe we start seeing some more M and A and more M and A that doesn't feel so desperate." Shall say? Yeah,
1: like dire. Yeah, I I agree. I think you know you look at publishers earnings and like, there are still a lot of areas in those businesses that are down. Um, I think subscriptions is one area that's based on like publisher earnings as was better than advertising at the very least. But I think if you're in the market to acquire a business and you see a big, you know, red bar on advertising, you're not going to want to Buy that unless it really, really decreases the price. I mean, I am not an MA expert by any means. I would not advise anyone on that matter, but I have to agree with you that, like, it doesn't look very attractive if your uh, main revenue source is down, you know, at least two years in a row. But we will see. Touching on subscriptions for a second, that is one area that I think, like, in terms of like, pure volume has been pretty stagnant, but a lot of publishers have been focusing on kind of, I think this is kind of taking a page from like how the New York Times looked at their um, subscription model when they acquired The Athletic, but really just focusing on per subscriber revenue versus like pure volume of subscribers. So trying to increase average revenue per user, ARPU is the other acronym for that. Um, But the focus that, or what I pointed out in the media briefing a couple weeks ago after all of the earnings were done is that the publishers who were focusing on ARPU very intensely or like talked about it a lot in their earnings saw a pretty good impact on how that led to an increase in overall subscription revenue um, during Q2. So positive trajectory there. People are hopefully paying for news, uh, paying a little bit more for news, or willing to pay a little bit more for news, especially going into, again, another political um, cycle or presidential election cycle. So hopefully that trajectory stays up as well.
0: Yeah, I wonder about that, because one, you have all these publishers raising their prices and trying to get people to pay more. But then you also have the streaming services raising their prices too. And then, I mean, just the inflation overall, like I can't believe how much I'm spending on groceries these days compared to two years ago, let alone like five years ago. And so that's, I don't know, this is personal and anecdotal, but like I finally canceled cable a couple weeks ago. Cause I was just like, it's not worth it. Everything's getting so expensive. You still
1: had cable? Yeah. Wow.
0: Sports. So, and I finally just said, no, never mind. Like I don't watch enough sports for this to be worth it. Um and when I I need it, I can sign up for a streaming pay TV service for a month and then get out of it and not be paying too much money each month. But that's something I'm really curious about is with everyone raising their prices and and we've already kind of seen this in the streaming front where you know, you have all the streaming services that have been raising their prices. And like Netflix, every time Netflix raises its prices, it sees some impact from that of, you know, people saying, all right, that's my threshold, I'm out. Or that's my threshold and, you know, I'll sign back up for Netflix when the next Stranger Things drops or the next Bridgerton season drops. But until then, I can go without Netflix. And so with the news publishers also, raising their prices, Um, and again, you throw inflation into this, and inflation has not come for people's salaries, so that also makes inflation even more infuriating, because it's not like people are getting paid more in relation to inflation. just feels like push comes to shove at some point.
1: Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, with Netflix doing their crackdown on password sharing, like, I... lost me there. I never even bothered to re-sign in after my mom took ownership of our formerly shared account. So yeah, I mean, it will depend. I I do think like there was a surge in subscription signups for news publishers in 2020 during COVID. Uh, I think the election year that year was also influential in that, that like kind of Trump bump and then Trump slump thing could have some sway with people's dollars. Because um, at the end of the day, like if news publishers are not getting the ad revenue that they need, they still need to be supported. So if they're paywalling things or if they're, you know, putting meters on, they're going to get more creative with how they're getting people to pay for news if advertisers will not support it. So we'll see. I mean, it's information that people need. Hopefully that means that they'll maybe trade off Peacock for, I don't know, the Washington Post or something. Who knows?
0: I think this is where we have philosophical differences in terms of our perceptions of (laughs) the public and what people are and are not willing to pay for. I would love to think that, you know, people will, um, choose to eat their vegetables instead of the ice cream, um, for dinner. But as someone who probably doesn't choose their vegetables and eats ice cream instead too often. I'm a little skeptical of that when it comes to peacock. That's true.
1: Toast. That that's very fair. But it's also, I guess, why the New York Times has their like gaming vertical, and I think the Washington Post also did gaming too to try and like make it a little bit more entertainment focused. Um, if people pay a little bit more for the bundles, so yeah, I mean, we'll see. It, it maybe I do have a very vegetable oriented mindset when it comes to that, but I don't know. People people do stay curious sometimes, so. We'll and it see. could be
0: interesting if we start seeing more like streaming services and publishers bundle up like maybe it's not oh do i sign up for peacock or the post but maybe i sign up for a bundle of both at a lower rate um and maybe that ends up being you know the deciding factor between whether i'm watching peacock tonight or reading the post tomorrow morning versus you know watching max and reading the times who knows
1: yeah yeah, maybe the Post will do something with Amazon Prime TV, and
0: um, which I'm sure Lena Khan will be very interested in looking into at the FTC. If that word again. Yeah, occurs.
1: yeah. I mean, but the Post has done bundling, um, and we've reported on that this summer too. I, I think Verizon was one that they did recently, and it was like a. They're they're definitely very curious about the the bundle strategy outside mm-hmm. of the walls of the Post. So I would not be surprised. Maybe that's the solution to the industry's is ales at this yeah. moment.
0: So should be an interesting fall and fourth quarter given everything we covered that's been going on this summer and all the things that we didn't even get to because it's kind of quiet of a summer as it felt like for me, there was a lot that's been going on in the past few months.
1: Yeah, and a lot, I agree, that's going to influence the back half this year. So lots to come uh, both on the Digiday podcast and digiday.com. So Stay tuned, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone.